You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Well, good evening. You can have a seat. Excited to be with you guys tonight. I know that you were expecting someone taller who has more hair, uh, but you get me tonight. Thank you, seriously, for praying for Dave this week. He has had a rough week with kidney stones, and he's at home recovering this weekend. And so we're going to continue tonight in our series called Simplify. I think we're about three weeks away from the end of this series where we have been looking at the areas of our life that are made simple, that become uncomplicated when we follow God's plan for how He has designed life to be lived. And this weekend, we're going to be looking at the complicated, the complicated area of raising children. And we know that that seems to be a complicated area for, for us, at least we have made it complicated. So what I want you to do is open your Bibles with me to New Testament book of Mark. Mark is the second book in the New Testament right after Matthew. We're going to spend the first bit of our time here. And then at the end, we're also going to look at Psalm 127 briefly. So if you want to open up to Psalm 127, you can. As you open there, I want to celebrate. We always love to celebrate life change in our church. Last weekend, we had a student, a college student come and place her membership here. Nicole Dale came and placed her membership here. So we celebrate that as God continues to change and shape lives and do amazing things in our hearts. And so I want to start by just praying that he would give us more of that and also praying for Dave as he recovers at home. Father, thank you for... All that you have done for us, just as we sang, Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of your name. You're worthy of all the praise that we can bring and so much more. And we celebrate, Lord, what you continue to do in the hearts and the lives, not just in our hearts and lives, but in our families and our children and these who come to to say we want more of this. We want to be a part of what you're doing. We pray for more of that. Lord, we lift up Dave to you who continues to struggle with pain and and discomfort. Lord, we pray that you would take that away from him and that you would ease what he's been going through, that he'd be able to be back this week and, and strengthened and refreshed. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at the topic of raising kids, last week when I preached on work, I gave this disclaimer that the sermon was not just for you who go to a 40 hour a week job. In the same way here, I want to start with a disclaimer that when we look at the difficult topic of raising kids, we are not just talking, I'm not just talking to you parents. In fact, what we have discovered throughout this series as we looked at what seems like really specific areas is that every one of these apply to all of us in some way. And this one is no different. Yes, it, it does apply to you as a parent and as you're seeking to raise your kids, but it also applies to you aunts and uncles and it applies to you grandmas and grandpas and it also applies to all of you who are sitting in this room who in some way have an influence in the lives of the children that God has blessed us to raise within this church. We are part of a church family, and we all have a part in raising the children who are in this church. And and you have a part whether you're involved directly or whether you're not involved, because your lack of involvement is having an indirect effect on the kids who are here because they are not benefiting from the gifts that God has given you and the way that God has shaped you to be a part of their lives. And so this sermon is for you 
regardless of whether you have your own children, regardless of whether your children are grown, it doesn't matter. We are talking to all of us within the church. Now, when you ask adults what they want for the kids around them, what they want for their sons and daughters and nieces and nephews, you're going to get a myriad of responses. I, I want them to grow up and be happy, to do the things that they love to do. I want them to be the best on their team. That's why we sign them up for travel ball. I want them to have opportunities, more opportunities than I had growing up. In fact, we could summarize all of this. We often say, I just want my kids to have a better life than I had. I took Parker over to my dad's uh, one night, and dad was frying bologna. And he said, Parker, do you want some fried bologna? And Parker said, what is bologna? And I said, kid, we have lived different lives. Like, we are not in the same boat here. Right? He, and, and it's indicative of the reality that I, I hope I've given him at least a slightly better life than I had. Not that my life was bad, but we want our kids to have a better life than us. Now, that's not a negative thing. That, that's a positive thing. And all of these responses are generally good things. But if these are the main things on which we are focusing in the lives of the kids around us, then we are missing the point. And it's probably a good indicator of why things have become complicated for you and your family. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9.25, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his soul? Jesus wasn't just talking about me. He's talking about Parker. He's talking about the kids that I have influence over. And through his words, we discover that if we raise our kids to be well-adjusted, to be materially comfortable, to be professionally successful adults, and they don't know the one who created them, and they don't live for him, then all of that success is for nothing. It's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. That's what's at stake when we look at the influence that we have over the children around us. And unfortunately, in a big way, even we in the church have missed out on this important truth. Because simply being raised in the church doesn't mean that a child will grow up with his or her own relationship with the Lord. In fact, if we look if we don't look closely at what God has to say about this area of our life, we risk demonstrating to our children that other things are important. We might give lip service to God. We might talk about how great Jesus is and to the way that he wants us to live. But if that isn't what we are demonstrating in our homes by the choices that we are making for ourselves and for our kids, then they will almost always follow what's demonstrated versus what's said. My parents used to say, do as I say, not as I do. But it doesn't hold water because we almost always did what they did and not what they said. They're demonstrating how life is lived. And so what I want us to do is lean in as we begin with this core truth and the reality that transcends the subject of relationships and values and parenting in every area of our lives. And that is that God is at work around me. And he is at work to bring me into relationship with himself. Now, I want you to notice that that first point on your outline, it doesn't have anything to do with your kids. That has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with me and it has everything to do with my heart. 
my own relationship with the Lord because this is what's ultimately going to have the greatest impact on the children around me and everything else that happens in my life. Now here in Mark 10, beginning in verse 13, we find Jesus in the midst of a very busy season of his ministry, right? Jesus' earthly ministry lasted about three years, and by towards the end of that three years, he had amassed a large number of followers, not just the 12 men whom he was discipling to continue spreading the gospel, but hundreds of people would follow Jesus everywhere he went. He was a very popular guy. And some of those people who were in the crowd following him, they were simply admirers or some were there looking for healing or some just saw something different in him that they wanted to know more about. Whatever the case, Jesus is almost always surrounded by people. And Mark records that many of these people were bringing their children to Jesus. He says people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Indisputably, Jesus is on the most important mission that humanity has ever known. It's not an exaggeration to say that he literally held the fate of the world in his hands, those same hands that are reaching out and, and touching these children who are embracing them, are the hands that held the fate of the world. This is where his attention is in the moment. He has the world at stake, and yet he's down on his knees reaching out and embracing these kids. Now notice where the attention of the disciples is. See, on the surface, they were all about Jesus' mission to save the world. They wanted to make sure that he wasn't distracted by anything because they knew how important it was. And sometimes they got that right, and sometimes they got that wrong. In this case, they get it wrong because they look at all of these kids who are being brought to Jesus and they see them as what? As distractions. And so they're thinking that what they're doing was in the best interest of his mission. They're, they're running the kids off. But instead of thanking them and for freeing up his time, Jesus rebukes them. Mark says he was indignant. Why was he indignant? Because his disciples had missed the point. Yes, what Jesus was doing was important. Yes, he had divine encounters that he needed to get to on his way to the cross, but they were missing something that Jesus knew so well, that God is at work in the lives of our youngest generation, in the hearts and the minds of children, and he's, he's involved in their hearts to draw them to the Savior. And I love that there's parents in this crowd of people following Jesus who got this who understood that it was important that they bring their children to the feet of this man, even if they couldn't fully grasp what it was he was doing or who he was. Can you imagine, just try to imagine how different our world would be today, how different the lives of our kids would be if we, if we, the followers of Christ, sought to place ourselves and our children within his presence and care over and above every single thing else. And of course, we've complicated things by not doing that and by not demonstrating this. 
So how do we uncomplicate it? How do we simplify it? It starts with this. We recognize and engage the reality that every human being has a divine purpose. Every human being has divine purpose. There is not one single life on this earth that is by accident. You may have children that you did not plan for, but let me assure you that God planned for them. Not just their existence, but a divine plan that he has for every single one of them. The Bible teaches that God knew us long before we were in the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There are no exceptions to this verse. Not the child who was planned and waited on for years and born perfectly healthy. Not the child who was an accident by the world's standards. Not the child who was born with a physical or mental disability. God's eyes were on every single one of them. And God has a plan for every single one of them. I love to look in the scriptures and see the examples of where this takes place, of parents who understood this and embraced the reality. I think about Moses' mother. Moses' mother, who was under enormous pressure to end the life of her child, a royal edict that declared that every Hebrew male born was to be killed or thrown into the river. And if we look at our world and the priorities of our government people, we are not far from this. Right? Under enormous pressure to end the life of her child. But in spite of that, she recognized the potential for which God had and, he, and had created her son and she refused to bow to that pressure. And we know that that boy and all of the mistakes that he made, he grew up to lead her people out of slavery in Egypt, slavery that had lasted over 400 years and to the brink of the promised land. What did God do with him? A man who had a stutter, a man who had made mistakes, a man who doubted himself. God used him in a huge way. Where I think about Hannah. Remember Hannah? prayed for a child because her womb was closed up and, and she would go to the temple and she got down and she, she begged God to give her a son. And finally, God does that. And what is the very first thing that she does after he's weaned? She gives him back to God. Samuel. Samuel, who would become the most important earthly priest who would anoint the most important earthly king. This is the plan that God had for Samuel. And his mother knew that God had a plan for him. Let me assure you that God has not finished using our children in this way. That we have no idea what kind of potential they have until we embrace the reality that God has this divine plan for them and then we engage that reality. How do we engage it? Well, we start by watching for clues and seeing what God is doing in their little hearts as he's shaping them and molding them. To see our children for more than just the distractions that the, that the disciples saw in the kids who were being brought to Jesus. To see them as more than just hindrances to free time and mess makers and back talkers. Parker has picked up this ability to be wildly sarcastic. And I know that he has done that because 
that is how Amanda and I communicate. That is our love language. It's sarcasm. And so Parker has picked this up. And we were surprised, like, the first few times he would say something. We were like, did he just say that? And then we got to thinking about it. And like, how do we fault him for this when this is how he's learned to communicate in our home? We have to look past the distraction of the sarcasm and see what God is doing in his heart. He, out of nowhere, a couple weeks ago, he told me that he wanted to preach a sermon. This kid is, has stage fright like you wouldn't believe. And he said, I want to I write and I want to preach a sermon. And I thought, God, what are you, what are you doing here? And I didn't have to teach him not be sarcastic when he preaches, but, but what are you doing here in his heart? So we look for these Clues. We recognize and engage the reality that God has a divine plan for our children by watching them and by getting them close to Jesus. But it's not just about watching them. It's making sure that they're at his feet. That they're at Jesus' feet, just like those parents in Mark 10. We make sure that they are in a place where they will experience his touch of compassion and love so that they themselves can come to the reality that they were created for a divine purpose. And it's why I get frustrated with parents who say, well, we don't, we don't bring our kids to church because we want them to make a decision for themselves. Well, how, how can they make that decision if you've not put them near the one who loves them the most? And we say, you don't have to go to church to get Jesus. No, but if you're not here, then what's, what's the priority that Jesus has in your home? Because if you're not here, I, I would wager a bet that he's not really a priority there either. And so we're not demonstrating what it is that Jesus has done and what he can do. Why do we want to miss out on the opportunity to have them where Jesus is taught and loved and experienced in real life? So we recognize and we engage this reality that God has a plan for them. We watch for clues and we, we get them close to Jesus. And here's the second thing. That our full potential is reached only in complete surrender to God's will and plan. Notice again, we're drawing it back to our own hearts. That, that where my heart is has an impact on the kids around me. I remember the story of the mother of James and John. We'll call her Mrs. Zebedee, Right? James and John were a part of Jesus' inner, inner circle. He had his 12, but he had these three guys who were with him in, in everything. Peter, James, and John. Matthew 20, 21, their mother approaches Jesus. Like any good mother, she wants what's best for her children. She recognizes how important Jesus is. She knows that he's going to be some kind of king. And so she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus' response is, you don't know what you're asking. He would go on to imply that to grant her request would result, directly result, in their crucifixion at his right and at his left. Sometimes we assume that we know what's best for our children. We make plans for them. They should go to college. They should stay home. They should take over the family business. They should do everything they can to get an athletic scholarship or work towards a profession that's going to pay well and let them retire early. And even if these things are well-intentioned, they're making assumptions about what it is that God wants for them when the reality is that we are settling for less than what's best for them. Because what's best for them is what God wants for them. 
To put this into perspective, let me, let me ask you this, because assuming that you have worked hard to save enough for your son or daughter's college, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I have a 529 account for Parker. We're saving for his college, assuming that he's going to go to college, or assuming that you've done everything to get them that sports scholarship by signing them up for the travel team and hiring private coaches and doing all that you can to make sure that they're noticed, or assuming that you have mapped out their lives to the nth degree. What happens when your teenage son or daughter comes to you and says, I want to be a missionary in a country that's hostile towards the gospel? I don't want your college money. I don't want the scholarship money. I don't want the degree. I, I want to go and be a light for Jesus. What is your response when you have devoted the, the majority of your life as a parent to preparing for something that God did not prepare for? You've made an assumption about what God wants. It's okay if other children, other parents' children go and do that. But it's different when it's my own. You see the difference in how our hearts get a little worked up when we think about that for our own kids? How far are we willing to go to submit to God's plan for their lives? The point is that you and I may have a plan for our kids, but we need to be 100% willing to release that in full submission to the plan that God has for them. To release it so that God can use them in the way that he designed them to be used. And in that, we teach them how to submit themselves to his plan. If I'm willing to submit to it as I've planned out things for them, then that will show them what it means to submit to God's plan. And like I said at the beginning, it starts right here. It starts with me leading the way by living in the center of God's will myself. If you're a single parent, then you live a God-centered life in your relationship with others by staying pure and focusing on the role that God has for you in this season of raising your kids. By living in obedience to his commands, his commands not to be yoked with unbelievers, but to live a life of, of purity as you seek to raise them and show them who God is. If you're married, raising kids together in partnership with your spouse, then you go home and you show them what it means to love somebody else in marriage. Because our kids are going to learn how to love by what we're demonstrating at home. They're going to learn how to treat their future wife. They're going to learn how to treat their future husband by what you're showing them. And so we go home and we live in obedience to this. Even if you don't have kids, if you're not a parent, then you have influence over children in some way. And so you plant yourself at a church that teaches truth and you apply that truth to every aspect of your daily life. There's no guesswork here. God has given us everything that we need, Peter says, to live a, a, a godly life through his word. And so we seek to let him be the center of everything and that is going to ripple out into the lives of the kids around us in everything that we do. Our job is to embrace what God has for us. Next, we pray with and for the children around us. A couple years ago, I think Parker had just started third grade, and it was going to be a difficult year. That was the year that kids were kind of just coming back to school after COVID. And so he was going into third grade. They were going to have to wear masks all day, every day. He was going to only be able to play with those 20 or so kids who were in his class all year long. No more going into the cafeteria and eating lunch in a crowded room. No more 
field trips, no more fun, no more parents in the room, right? They'd stripped away all the fun parts of school, and what he was left with was sitting at a desk, which was an island in and of itself, listening to his teacher. And at the start of that year, we had some really, really difficult nights, because he would be thinking about the next day, and he would just break down. And we would, we would have to work through all that and get him to go to bed. And the next morning, we'd have to get up. And he and I would ride to school in, in silence. And then I would have to watch him walk slowly into the building. I remember one day, I had dropped him off. And I was, just, I was just broken. And I got back to my office here. And I just sat down. And, and I just prayed in tears. And I'm not, I'm not someone who prays a lot in tears. But I just prayed in tears. I said, Father, give him joy. That, that was all I could pray for, was just give him joy, because I wasn't seeing it. I wanted him to know what it was to have joy in Jesus, even if the circumstances around him were awful. How do you teach that to a nine-year-old? And, and I got to tell you, I saw God do amazing things in that. I saw him, over the course of that year, shape his heart and give him joy in different things and the way things had been changed. And I'm so thankful for God's faithfulness in that. But I had to demonstrate it myself. I had to demonstrate what it means to have joy in the Lord, even if the circumstances around me were crumbling. He had to see it worked out in me before he understood what it meant for it in his own life. So we pray for our kids. Father... Help them to see what you're doing and to see who you are. Next, we're sensitive and responsive to the Holy Spirit, not only in my life and what he's alerting me to pay attention to, but in the lives of our kids. Every day, God opens the door for us to have discussions with our children or the children and our influence about who he is, how he created them, who Jesus is, and how he has saved them. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize these open doors and to have even quick conversations with your children about who God is. A couple weeks ago, Parker sat right down here during midweek as I preached on Ruth. And when the sermon got over, he said, that was a really good sermon. And that was high praise because just before I got up to preach, he told me how boring my sermons were. <laughs> And so I, I was like elated. I was like, really? That's really cool, buddy. And then I preached last week and he told me it was boring again. But he, he got excited about this story within the Bible. And he and I have had so many cool conversations about those kind of obscure, really gritty things in the Bible that all have purpose. And it opened up an opportunity for me to just talk with him five, ten more minutes about who God is and about what he's done to lead him closer to the Lord. Third, we set boundaries, and then we see how they perform inside those boundaries. You and I are responsible for setting down guideposts and fencing to ensure that our kids stay within the boundaries of where God wants them. And so with them rightly protected, we can watch and see how they're engaging God. Are they listening? Are they staying at Jesus' feet? Are they using their time and their talents and their abilities and their relationships to honor him? Or are they chasing after the world and what it has to offer? If that's what you're doing, then that's what they're going to do. And so we keep them in a boundary that will lead them and show them what's most important. And related to that, 
We oppose and counteract the world's negative influence because we know that the world has a negative influence on our kids. As much as you and I are trying to lead our children closer to Jesus to get them within reach of his compassionate touch, the world is trying just as hard to pull them away. That has always been a reality. But today, the world's reach is farther than it ever has been. Social media and YouTube and TikTok and movies and Netflix and music and school and friends, all of it are vying for the hearts of our children. All of it wants them to embrace what the world has to offer. If we leave the negative influences of the world unchecked, then let me assure you that it will win. It'll get a hold of them. And it's going to be that much more difficult to pull them back because the minds of your children are being shaped by the things that you are allowing into their hearts. And so don't be surprised when they start expressing worldly ideas that are diametrically opposed to what God has for us. Because that is all they're seeing in the world. That's why Paul urges, don't, be conform, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, don't let the world shape your children, but let their minds and hearts be transformed by what Jesus has done for you and what he has done for them. Go back to Mark 10 for a moment. Just one last thing that I want us to notice in verse 16 as we kind of get wrapped up. Mark records that Jesus took the children in his arms. He placed his hands on them and he blessed them. Imagine that for a moment in your own children. In your nieces and your nephews and your little brothers and sisters and your grandkids and all those kids that you were here serving at VBS. Picture Jesus down at their level, wrapping his arms around them, those same arms that would be stretched out on a cross for them. And the image should call this to our attention, that our children are on loan to us from God. And our responsibility is to return them to him. That those children that Jesus were embracing, they were his. He had created them. He was holding his own creation in his arm. And God may allow for every person to enter into this world in different ways. We talked about that. But that doesn't change the fact that they are a gift on loan and that God has a specific purpose, a plan, and a will for every single one of them and every single one of you. I had you mark down Psalm 127. Go ahead and turn there with me. I want to read the whole psalm. It's a short psalm. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the, labor, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, and he grants sleep to those he loves. We, we looked at that part of this psalm just a few weeks back as we looked at Nehemiah's story and how God calls us to work even though he's the one who is ordaining for us. That we work while we rely on God. That's, that's the start of the psalm. But then he goes on to talk about children. I think that's interesting that we're looking at this reality that God has said, you are still to do this while you depend on me for this. Because in verse 3 he says, 
Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. See, we may have plans for our children. There's nothing wrong with having plans for our children. There's nothing wrong with preparing and, and, and getting them ready and, and teaching them and, and wanting good things for them. I certainly have plans for Parker. Yes, I, I want him to grow up and be healthy and happy, to have a good career in a loving family. I want him to have a full life and to be able to experience more of the world than I ever have. Cicero is attributed with one of my favorite quotes about fatherhood when he writes of his son, you are the only man of all men whom I would wish to surpass me in all things. Right? Every, every father knows that reality. So yes, I, I want him to have more than I had. I want him to experience more than I experienced. I'm glad that he doesn't know what baloney is, right? But it's, it's bigger than that. Because I, I want him to be a better husband than I am. I, I want him to be a better father than I am. I want him to have greater relationships with the people around him. I want him to know how life can really be lived. But it's, it's even bigger than that. I want him to be more obedient than I am to the Lord. I don't want him to face the same battles that I've had to face in my walk with Christ. I want him to know what it is to say yes to God and to say no to the world, but it's even more important than that. I want him to know more than I know the all-surpassing love of Jesus Christ. I want him to walk away from his life knowing Jesus more than I knew Jesus. And I think I know Jesus well, and I know there's, there's infinitely more to know, but I want him to know more than that. That he might know what it is to be loved by this Savior who first loved him. Because as much as I know and love Jesus, I want him to understand what God has for him. I want him to understand the depth of the reality of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That he would grow up and teach that to his own children and a desire for them to know Jesus more than he does. Do you see how it progresses? And as it progresses, that's where we see life change. That's where we see world change. By starting with the kids who are around us. So even though his struggle with school isn't the same as it used to be, I had the same prayer. Father, give him joy that he would know you more. Not joy in what the world has to offer, but the real joy of being embraced by you. And Lord, help me, just as the psalm says, to take this little arrow that you have placed in my quiver and to shoot it back into the world that he might show the world that same joy that he has. May this be the prayer that we have for our kids and our grandkids and every child that we have influence over. Let's stand up and let's pray for that now. Father, thank you for the influence that you've given us over not just the own, our children that we're raising, Lord, but the kids who are part of this church, the kids that we have influence over in our everyday lives, those who you've brought to us. May our hearts be like that of Jesus, willing to embrace them and to love them that they might know the love of a Savior. I'm grateful for a church who understands this. 
I'm grateful for a staff of people and a slew of volunteers who have said, I know the importance of this and I want to love kids because I want them to know you. So help us, Lord, to do that. Do not get distracted. Yes, the work is important, but this is the work. This is what you've given us to do. So help us do it and to experience the simplicity of life lived on your terms by your standards according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've asked the staff that serve our kids in some way downstairs through fifth grade and middle school and high school to just be present up here. And my encouragement to you is if you need prayer, raising your kids, if you need to, if you need to help with that or if you need to take a next step yourself, then your opportunity is to come and to be encouraged and to be prayed for and to be loved. You can come as we sing.